Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. I don't know if you people were around for camp meeting, but it feels like I was just up here not too long ago. And uh, it's not camp meeting time, but uh, we've decided that actually the pastor and the leadership of the church that we are going to put out a schedule for the preaching and the topics. And it's kind of interesting that um, I am the first one in the series of going through our fundamental beliefs as sermon topics to help us get a better understanding of what's taking place. Now, uh, before I get going too much, I'd like to ask for a word of prayer. Our dearest Heavenly Father, you know, this message has been on my heart ever since I volunteered to present this word. I ask now, as I've asked this week, that I feel your presence and your guidance. And may I empty myself of self and be filled with your spirit, I ask, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You know, uh, it was kind of interesting that you may have seen a number of us church leaders being absent on certain Sabbaths. And as it turns out, we have been going to the conference on a regularly scheduled basis in order to revitalize the churches in the Southern New England Conference. Now we may ask, do our churches need revitalization? Well, I hear an amen over here, and, and I have to say, once we got to the seminar on revitalization, little did we know the sorry condition of our churches here in the Southern New England Conference. It turns out, when they did a study in 2022, in the NAD, out of 6,443 churches, it was found that 61% of the churches were found to be in a condition of decline. Now, what do you mean by a condition of decline? Well, it's quite obvious they used as a as a criteria, the number of attending members, very important, and that 61% of them were declining. In that same study, they found that another 11% had plateaued. They were no longer growing and they weren't going down. Now, we have a number of visitors here. Is that a condition of your church? Is your membership declining? Is your membership staying about even? Well, we also found that another 27% of the churches were only growing by addition. Now, what kind of addition was taking place? Can you guess what kind of addition happens to churches that aren't real healthy? They grow by addition through the adding of family members. 
There's only one problem with only adding through family members. Standing up here, you will note that some of our members begin to get old, or older, we could say. And I know that in this church ourselves, we have lost a number of our older members. So as you're, if you're only bringing in family members and the older family members of the church are beginning to decline, not only in age, but no longer able to attend, we find that there's a real problem on. Now, I don't know if you were listening to those numbers and you've got math minds, but how many of those churches does it represent? Well, if you take a look at it, there are only 1% of the churches are growing by multiplication. That's a sad state of affairs for us that are members of this church and are, are excited about doing God's purpose. Now, I do have to admit and it was even confirmed when we were there, and some of the conference membership came here to discuss with us, we are not in that group of declining. We are not in that number of churches that have plateaued. We're also not in that group that are adding by addition. Our church is relatively healthy, but does that mean we do not to have to hear a message about revitalization? No, because there is much more that we need to do to get more excited in this church. So, one of the attributes that they felt they needed to introduce was a couple of things. One is to reach out to our members and our visitors that are regular visitors and start a program of something called visitation. Now for us math majors, visitation is kind of scary. That means I gotta go and visit somebody. And our church membership and leadership divided all of the regularly attending people of this church. And the conference had a whole list of them. And they divided all the membership up amongst the elders, the, um, the women of Israel, to select a number of people, and we are trying in a three-month period, to visit everyone in this church. Is that exciting that you would get a visit from someone in leadership of your church? Huh? You'd be interested in that? That's very important. Well, the second thing they also recommended was that we start a preaching schedule in which we would, over the course of a year, have a sermon dedicated to each of our 28 fundamental beliefs. I mean, it's hard to believe that we have a whole congregation of Seventh-day Adventists, and I have to dare say that many of us have not spent much time learning and understanding our 28 fundamental beliefs. 
Now, I'm not going to ask you to lift up your hand to see if you recognize yourself as one who does understand all 27 fundamental beliefs or don't understand all 27 fundamental beliefs. However, I do have to say that I've been a member of this church since 1987. And it wasn't until this year that I first went through all 28 fundamental beliefs in order to prepare a young family for baptism. And it's going to happen, I'm excited, in two weeks. A whole family of four are going to be baptized. And I've just started with another person willing to be baptized or wanting to be baptized. And we are also studying the 28 fundamental beliefs. And even more exciting, the pastor just finished a baptismal study with a young person who's also going to be baptized in two weeks. That's what it means to have a church that's growing by multiplication and not just family. But you know, I was looking back over my journey, we could call it, in becoming an Adventist, and I have to say that I don't remember ever having been walked through the 28 fundamental beliefs. Do any of you ever have that problem? Or were you just, I want to be baptized and I want to be baptized now? Man, and, and don't confuse me with all the facts. I know enough of them. That's me, My, you know. Because I have a long history when it comes to the church. And I think that says what? Huh? My own experience. If you can imagine 35 years ago, I was living in Washington, D.C., just inside the Beltway up north in Maryland, and my young, beautiful wife decided that she was going to start a physical therapy practice. And I have to say, she is a great physical therapist. Unfortunate for you, she just retired, so too bad. No. But the one thing that happened is, that in order to start this practice in our home, she decided to send out letters to every orthopedic doctor in the area. Great idea, right? I thought it was a pretty good idea. Because I was her office manager and I did all the typing, so no problem. But as it turned out, only one doctor began referring patients to her. And would you know what that doctor was? A Seventh-day Adventist. And all of the patients that he referred to my wife were Seventh-day Adventists. And most of the time, they were employed by the General Conference. Now, if you want to get introduced to the Seventh-day Adventist theology, why don't you lay on the table and have a therapist work on you? 
And then that therapist always asks questions. She would always engage the people. And wouldn't you know that one of her patients was an evangelist from the conference, and he was just about to put on a discovery seminar. So what do you think he did? He invited my wife to come and attend. And she did. She began attending not only that night, but every night. And within six weeks, my wife was baptized. Pretty impressive, huh? Except she was impressed, but when she got home at night, when she was busy jumping up and down on the bed that I was trying to sleep on, because she was so excited, I had to say, keep it to yourself. I'm glad you're happy, but I'm trying to sleep. Do you have that problem in your life that when God is speaking to you, you'd much rather be asleep? Well, that's what happened to me. As it turned out, under the encouragement of my wife, we went to Sabbath services every weekend. And because I was new to the faith and I wasn't part of the faith, I went to a New Beginners Bible study. And we were studying all the way through the Old Testament. And I thought it was great. I could read the Bible and I could understand what I was reading. There was only one problem. While I could understand the stories... As far as I was concerned, they were all good stories. Three years later, attending every Sabbath to that Sabbath school, we finally got to the book of Daniel. And it was like a light suddenly went on in my head. It was like, bing! This book is more than just a book of stories. This book, indeed, is a book inspired by God. And when I came to that realization, that completely changed my whole attitude and relationship to the stories that I had been studying. I don't know about you, but the reason I picked the title here was because of the importance of this very foundational, important part of becoming a Seventh-day Adventist. It is that God's Word provides the very foundation for all that we believe. If you take out uh, a baptismal certificate, and I have one in my bag there, but I didn't have enough hands. You can look at all 28 fundamental beliefs, and then in the back of it, they'll ask you the 13, do you believe, and you say yes. But I tell you, very foundational is the topic of 
this sermon today. It goes on and says, The Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testament, are the written word of God given by divine inspiration. Understanding this is absolutely essential to the believer's theological journey. And it's best stated in 2 Timothy, and we're going to thank Levi for reading our scripture today, found in 2 Timothy 3, 16, and I'm adding 17 to it, and it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This scriptural verses, these scriptural verses, are essential for us to believe all of the other fundamental beliefs that we believe in. And you say, why is that? Well, when Paul was going through the different regions of the Gentiles, and he first started telling the story of Jesus, whenever he was with believers, he would reference how Jesus was a fulfillment of scriptures. So what did he present to them? The scriptures, because they believed in the scriptures. But when he came to the Gentiles, could Paul convince them of Jesus Christ by using the scriptures? Why would he try to get them to understand about Jesus Christ by telling them about the scriptures? Because they didn't believe in the scriptures. How can you believe your fundamental beliefs if you don't believe in the very foundational principle that all scripture is inspired of God? And it's very important that we recognize a very important word that I just stated. It says, all scripture is inspired of God. Why is that so important that all scripture is inspired of God? Well, something very serious takes place if we don't believe in all the scriptures being inspired of God. Pretty soon, as soon as we don't believe the word all, we get to decide within the scriptures which part we are going to believe. Well, maybe I don't believe in the creation story as it's written there in Genesis. I'm saying maybe. I'm not telling you I don't. Or maybe... Noah's Ark was a great story. Now, I'm a sailor. I've spent 20 years in the Coast Guard, and I've spent a lot of time on the water. And why would you build a boat on dry land? Now, I've seen people that have done it, but I've also seen those people have a hard time getting it out of their basement 
and getting it to the water. So why would you build a boat on dry land that has never seen water? Well, maybe I can't believe Noah's Ark. Well, being a sailor, do I believe in the story of Jonah being in the belly of a large fish for how long? Three days and three nights. Seems like a long time to me. And fish are awful smelly. And being a sailor, the last thing I want to do is be in the belly of a fish for three days. But you know, um, I question that and that story and several of the other Old Testament stories. So my question is, if you don't believe all the scriptures, when and where do you decide which ones you're going to believe? Can you help me with a little clue? No, there isn't a clue. You either believe in all of them or you don't believe God's word. God's word is provided as inspired by his scriptures. How do we know it's the truth? Well, it gives us all the guidance we may need. And if we want to know the truth about God, where do we go? We go to the scriptures. And this next scripture is found in Isaiah 8.20. And it says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Wow. If you hear a message about God, where do you take it? You have to take it to Scripture. And if you can't find the evidence there in Scripture, do you believe it? No. You have to believe that the Scriptures are the definitive truth about God and His guidance to us. I even have the question of what is truth? Well, we just said go to the testimony because that's where we find it as we go through it. And then we see when Jesus was going before Pilate and Pilate was questioning him found in John 17. No, is it John 17? Yes. Before we get to John 17, well, John 17, it says what? Sanctify them by your what? By your truth, for your word is truth. But when Jesus was before Pilate, what did Pilate say? Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Did Pilate understand what truth was? He was questioning what truth really was. Where do we go to find truth? God's word. Because God's word is indeed found 
in his scriptures. If Pilate had known the scriptures, he indeed would have known the truth. Paul, in writing to the believers in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, reminded them that they received the truth, not from men, but from the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Where do you get your truth? It has to be found in God's word. And it is found in God's word because his word is indeed inspired by him. Paul was confident about God's word. As a matter of fact, he penned in Hebrews 4:12, "For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword." And it is something that we can depend on. And why can we depend on it? Because it remains his word. It is unchanging. And we're told that while it is a living word, and it's living because it is real and it, it invigorates us, but at the same time, it is the same yesterday, as it is today, as it will be tomorrow. And we can depend on it to place our confidence in his word. And it truly is something that we can depend on. He also, we see in God's word that it says, every word of God is pure, and he is a shield to those who put their trust in him. His scriptures be, provide us with the faith and confidence that we can go forward and know what we believe. Because at any time, if we have questions, we know where we can go. And that's to God's word to understand the good news about this is it continues to be the same. And in Matthew 5, 18, we even see that Jesus himself said, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is Fulfilled, Matthew 5, 18. These are powerful statements that are proclaimed by Jesus. And any time we decide to add or subtract from God's word, we are in contrast to God's word. We can't add 
and we can't take away. It is great to know that God's message is there. It's powerful. And it is there for our instruction, for our reproof, it says. No, when I was leading out in this study, I was wondering what reproof was because, as I've told you, I'm a sort of an engineer, I'm a math major. English wasn't good for me. So when I come across words like reproof, I have to look at what it means by dividing it up. And reproofing means reproving for us the scriptures of God. And it's very important that if we know it, we can always go back and get reproved for it. Reproof over and over again because his word is not changing. Now I do know, and I've told it to many of you, that I'm a New King James fanatic. No, I wouldn't call myself a fanatic, but if you're not reading my version, you're condemned. No. <laughs> okay. I do have to say that in preparation for this message today, I did a lot of research. I went online. Of course, we know everything we find online is the truth, right? If you want to get confused, go online. Okay? Because I looked at how the Bible has come about. And I read about so many different versions of God's Word that I became truly confused. But there's one very important point that we have to look to as we look through these various translations of God's Word. It has one central centerpiece, and that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, I don't care which translation you become accustomed to reading and become founded in your faith. And there may be differences between the different translations that we may carry by our side. But I tell you, the differences in the translations do not mount to a hill of beans when it comes to your salvation. And if you dwell on the differences, you are majoring in minors. And you are missing the major point. So I don't care whether you use the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New International Version, the American Standard Version, the Message Bible, the Living Word. I just want you to read His Word and become convicted that what message is found there is about our Lord and Savior. So it doesn't matter which one we use. But the importance is that we take a look at what Peter wrote for us in 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
Let's hope that you have this relationship with whichever translation you use. But know that if you have a conflict between translations, you need to take it to the Lord in prayer. And with that praying to the Holy Spirit to give you an understanding of his word, God will provide you with a right understanding, regardless of what translation you use. I just pray that you use a translation and keep it close by your side. You know, that foundational truth that all scripture, and I mean all scripture, is inspired of God, is continued in that very foundational truth. And it goes on and says, the Holy Scriptures are the supreme, authoritative revelation of His will. They are the standard of character, the test of experience, the definitive revealer of doctrine, and trustworthy record of God's act in history. It doesn't matter what translation you may read. In all cases, each Bible is centered around Jesus Christ. I just hope that you have, and I just pray that you use at least one translation that you become comfortable in. And when you have questions about it, Take up other translations and see how they match up to get a right understanding. Because I do have to say that there isn't one translation that you need to depend on. But you do need to depend on the Holy Spirit and God leading you in his understanding. And I'd like to close as I move forward with something from the psalmist found in Psalms 119-105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I wish for you that his word in your life is a light to your path so that you won't be found in darkness being led astray.